0: Our reading this morning comes from the third chapter of Acts, verses 1 to 26. Shall we stand in honor of God's word? Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the, ninth, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they daily, who laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate. Of the temple, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. May God bless his word. You may be seated.
1: In the last message, we looked in verses uh, 1 through 10 of Acts chapter 3 at what it was that was accomplished. We looked specifically at that healing that took place, the strengthening of the ankles, the fact that uh, the result of that healing and of that strengthening was that he was walking and that he was leaping, and most importantly, that he then was praising God and that he entered the temple and the fact that by entering the temple he was he went from being unclean to clean that he went from being unholy to made holy and the result of all of that that we see now is at that uh, verse 10 is that those Uh, that saw this take place recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened they were filled with amazement and then the man himself while he clung to Peter and John all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's so this Solomon's portico, it's a portion of the temple itself. It is the, uh, the, the, uh, that patio where the Gentiles uh, would gather as well. And so this is where Peter and John have gone. That's where they were headed originally to uh, present the gospel of Jesus Christ to the, the, the men of Israel there when they came across this man. And I made the point last time that this physical interaction that took place between the apostles and this lame man was an actual physical demonstration of the gospel itself that they were on their way to go Proclaim. What was unclean, what was unfit to go into the temple, the very thing that demonstrated the presence, uh, the, a special presence of being in the glory uh, or, or, or uh, where the glory of God was in the Old Testament— Um, This man was made clean and able to do that. And so we see the response of all of these people who are astonished, they're amazed, this man is clinging to Peter, and basically what they want to know now that they've seen what has happened, they want to know how did this happen. And the answer to how did this happen is back in verse 6. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In that famous Shakespearean tragedy, we have Juliet asking that question What's in a name? that which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. And that makes for fun romanticism. You know, Juliet, she's led by the heart entirely. There's only one thing in view. She's reduced everything else going on in the world. Any of the conflict that takes place between the two families, the Montague, the Montagues and the Capulets, and all that's in view is what she wants, which is that love of her life. And when you simplify it to that degree, to the point where she's only looking at her emotions, then sure, you can ask the question, okay, well, what is in a name? Does it really matter what the name is? Well, God doesn't do that. God doesn't reduce things or... or. or he, he simplifies in some terms, but he doesn't do it at the expense of everything else. And instead, he goes about it in exactly the opposite way, which is he simplifies by containing all of the complexity, the intricacies, the layers of the history of the Old Testament into the identity of Jesus Christ by pointing to the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In fact, we can see that that's the way that God works because in Exodus chapter 20 and 24, talking about laws, about altars, it says, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So G- so God here in the Old Testament is giving this instruction about the laws of altars. And he is saying that this physical thing is there. So that when they go to worship at this altar, when they go to sacrifice on this altar, what, they're just going to remember, like, the letters of his name? Or they're not going to forget, you know, what to call him, like his moniker or anything? No, when they come to this altar, they're going to remember my name, and he will come and bless you because it contains the identity of God. When he says, you will remember my name, it is a matter of possession and identity. He's saying, you are my possession. You are my particular people. You come to the altar, and at that place, and at that time, you will remember my name. And by just saying, you will remember my name, he is indicating all of the things that come along with being in a part of that identity. And then in addition to that, in Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 and 21, it says, Behold, I send an angel before you. So this is uh, when they're going to go on their conquest into Canaan. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, And to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So they're going to head to a particular land that he has set aside for them. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. That's the voice of the angel. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So what we see here is in this reference to the name is that it is a matter of authority. In this case, the angel, because he carries the name of Yahweh, There is authority that comes along with it. Additionally, then, when we look in Exodus 33, verses 18 and 19, we see yet another aspect of the name. I'll start at verse 17. And Yahweh said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. You remember this account. He's on Mount Sinai. I mean, has there ever been a bigger ask? I don't know. Maybe maybe, uh, uh, James and John. But Moses says, will you please show me your glory? And what does God say? And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will pro- proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So, connected to the name of God is a sense of possession, a sense of identity. Connected to the name of God is authority. And now we have a direct connection with the name of Yahweh is his own glory. So we can see that the importance of God's name and how God uses the phrase of the name in his word. Now, knowing that, look at what happens in our passage in Acts three, verses eleven to twenty-six, I don't know if you caught it when um, Wayne read the scripture for us here, but in these verses there are ten, no fewer than ten, different references to Jesus to Jesus by name or by some kind of title, and the ten of the ten different times. Of the ten times that Jesus is referenced in some way, there are eight different modifications. Different titles, different references, different names that are applied to him. In verse 13, he is referred to as God's servant. It also uses his name, Jesus. In verse 14, he's referred to as the holy and righteous one. In verse 15, he's called the originator of life. In verse 18, he's referred to as Christ. And in verse 20, in your your translation there, it it may read, I know that it does in uh, in the ESV, it says um, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. The more wooden translation directly to, uh, from the Greek would be the appointed one who is uh, Jesus, who is the Christ. So basically you have yet another title, which is the appointed one. And then in verse 22, he's referred to as a prophet. And then in verse 26 at the end, once again, he is referred to as his servant. All of these different titles are given after Peter and John had already healed him by the power of the name of Jesus Christ. And if you were to trace these different titles that are used in this section of Scripture back to their roots in the Old Testament, what you would realize that Peter is communicating just by using those titles is he is tying Jesus to being the seed of Abraham, to being a prophet like Moses, to being the Davidic Messiah, and to being the suffering servant of Isaiah. And in addition to all of those references, to all of those connections that are taking place from Peter's sermon that bring them back to what they would have been raised to learn about, from their Old Testament uh, education, he adds to that... In verses 18 and 24, the fact that that wasn't enough, he says it is what all the prophets, by the mouth of all the prophets, in verse 18, and then in verse 24, and all the prophets who have spoken. He, in a matter of a few words, has not only given all of these titles that bring all of that history along with uh, the remainder of his sermon but he goes and basically says and all of the prophets everything that was prophesized prophesied points to this name Jesus himself is a fulfillment of all that took place in the Old Testament and this emphasis on the name had another connection You'll recall hopefully as well last week, I made the point that in um, acts chapter three that that uh, that actually in acts three through acts five, there is this particular focus on the temple, and we saw that right at the very the last Couple of verses of Acts chapter two talks about the fact that Peter and John were going in, uh, were were ministering daily at the temple, and then we see the same thing, Sim- similar language at the end of chapter five, and then we saw the number of times that the temple is mentioned in Acts three one through ten. Well, the name has also a connection to the temple, and in First Kings chapter eight. Verses 17 to 20. This is how it reads. Now it was in the heart of David, my father. So obviously this is referring to Solomon. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of Yahweh. He's going to build a house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But Yahweh said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your ha- your heart to build a house for my name you did well that it was in your heart nevertheless you shall not build the house but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name now yahweh has fulfilled his promise that he made for i have risen in the place of david my father and sit on the throne of israel as yahweh promised and i have built a house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So the name of Yahweh, again, is not only associated with a possession and an identity and with authority and with his glory, but the name of Yahweh has a special connection to the temple itself. So the very ge- geographic location, the spot that Peter is standing when he gives this Uh, sermon has a connection to the name of God. And then in uh, that same chapter in 1 Kings 8, down at verses 29 and 30, in this prayer of dedication of the temple, it says, Uh, That your eyes may be opened night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. So this temple, this place is where God's name, which is to say his God's presence, God's glory Exists in the Old Testament temple schema, in the economy of the Old Testament, Peter is standing there to talk about the fact that this name that has done this is the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it's all of that fulfillment that he is pointing to and that he is giving credit to that, may, that caused this man to rise up and walk. So the way that Peter handles this then is that knowing that the name carries this identity, it carries this authority, it carries this connection to glory and the presence of God, he then proceeds to address the crowd. Remember, he's in Jerusalem. He's at the temple, so who is it he's talking to? He's talking to Jews. And at the beginning of this explanation, then, he, he makes a connection with them. He says in uh, verse 12, men of Israel, he is a man of Israel, they are men of Israel. Why do you wonder at this, and why do you stare at us? As though by our power or piety we have made him walk. He's immediately deflecting the attention, and then what does he do? He's talking to Jews, so what is he going to do to make this connection for them? He immediately goes to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. They would have been brought up. They were good Jews. They were men of Israel. They were there at the temple At the ninth hour, they were there to do their duty. At the hour of prayer, they were continuing to participate in what they thought was the right way to worship God. Peter meets them there, and then these same people who would have at least twice a day recited the Shema, that would have participated in saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These people who would have been saying that, reciting that twice a day, and that are now at the very temple, at the ninth hour, at the hour of prayer, are there hearing Peter telling them that all of it is connected to Jesus. And not only is it connected to Jesus, it is being represented in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so he takes this reference to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant. He ties it to Christ, and then he immediately takes that and reveals to them their own guilt. But you, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, Pilate, when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the death, from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So he took something in which they took pride. They were Jews. They they cut their teeth on the Shema. They were brought up from the earliest conceivable age to hear the law of God, to hear it being read. They were inculcated. They were taught. They were saturated with the word of God of the Old Testament. And he is saying this very thing and this identity, the fact that your parents chose to circumcise you on the eighth day, and the fact that you identify as a Jew, and the fact that you have gone out of your way to be here at the temple at this prescribed hour, you're the same one that was saying, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. How's that for taking away your identity, for taking away any kind of hope that you have in your history, or in the tradition that you grew up. He stripped away from them every preconceived notion and then goes right back to Christ and gives credit to, to whom credit is due. And in verse 16, he said, uh, Peter says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And you realize that this principle applies to us just as much today. You could replace the perfect health that's being referred to here with any success that you or I have enjoyed if you have had good health, if you have had financial success, if you have seen promotions in your career, if you have had the opportunity to have children or you have, ch- you have a, a meaningful relationship with your children, uh, if you have a healthy marriage, if, you're, if there are any goals in your life that you have, you do not get to take credit for that any more than these men of Israel get to take credit because they're a Jew and so therefore, and they were circumcised and they know things about the Old Testament, therefore they get credit. Peter turned that completely on its ear. He said, no, you're guilty. And it's only through faith in his name that made this man strong. And the fact of the matter is, any lasting, meaningful, God-honoring thing that we have or that we have accomplished in our life is because of faith in the name of Jesus. And while Christ certainly gets the credit for any earthly blessing, there is also much more connected to faith in his name. We see that in these verses uh, 17 through 21. And Peter He he shows a little bit of mercy towards these guys because you can imagine how they were feeling after he said, yeah, we're witnesses. We were there when you called for Barabbas, the murderer, and you called for Jesus to be crucified. We were witnesses of that. But look what he does. He says in verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer... He thus fulfilled. So, in other words, God worked out his perfect plan even through your sin. He did this. And then he points to two things in particular that are accomplished. We see here that it says that through faith in the name, what goes hand in hand with this faith in the name from verse 16 is we see in verse 19 repent, therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out." This is 100% antithetical to any kind of name it and claim it theology. The word of faith, name it and claim it, thinking says, Lord, I want this outcome in the name of Jesus, more money, Name of Jesus. Better health. Name of Jesus. Success. Name of Jesus. As long as you put the name of Jesus on it, that somehow you are calling down the power of God to make this outcome happen for you. And you tell me how that squares with Peter, who is telling these men, you don't have you don't have any ground to stand on and that by faith in his name you know what you can do? Repent. If you have faith in his name, if you believe in the power of his name, in the glory associated with his name, if you believe in the authority associated with Christ's name, then the result of that, first of all, is repentance. It is not therefore I gain. I have your name, so I gain. The first response to having the name and to having faith in Christ is to realize you have nothing. And you have nothing to bring to the table. The second thing we see here in verses 20 and 21, see the so that, look at what else we get. So repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, and then verses 20 and 21, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The so that here, the other thing that accompanies, that goes hand in hand, with the name of Jesus, is first repentance, and then it is a hopeful expectation. We, in the present, gain a refreshing. That is a reference to this inaugurated kingdom. It is a receiving of the Holy Spirit. It is the confidence we have that when I mentioned in... um, in the pastoral prayer from Psalm 55, that we can cast your burden on Yahweh and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be, to be moved. It is part of that very promise that we can receive a refreshing, an assurance, that we can look forward and know that we have repented. And based on our faith in the name of Jesus Christ, we have a future that cannot be altered, that we can gain a refreshment today. And how long does that refreshment last? Uh, Until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Christ will return and will restore all things. But between now and then, we have this kingdom that Christ has inaugurated and that we can take assurance that there is an expectation and that there is a hope and we are in what's referred to repeatedly here these days and that's what's talked about in verses 22 to 25 again referring to Jesus the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers you shall listen to him and whatever he tells you And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, those who came after him, also proclaimed these days. So in this sermon to these men, men of Israel, that Jesus is proclaiming on Solomon's portico, when he talks about these days, we are still in these days. They were in the earlier days of these days, and we are in those, that same time period. And he tells them, you are the sons of the prophets in the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, he's, he's acknowledging that they're Jews, essentially, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. But then we see in verse 26 that this idea of the name, the possession, the identity, the authority, the power, the glory that is associated with the name of Jesus has nothing to do with earning and uh, uh, earthly gifts, um, but instead it is so that by blessing you, it will bless you to turn every one of you from your wickedness. So he has given it to them straight that the fulfillment, the culmination of Jesus and the name of Jesus Christ is to result in their repentance from wickedness. So I would repeat the question, what is in a name? Well, what can be applied here today that Peter applied to the hearers of that message originally? First of all, is that it strips us. The name of Jesus strips us of any preconceived notions whatsoever. We... We don't, you don't, you don't have anything to bring. You don't get to say at the end, well, let's weigh it in balance. It's not just out of balance. You've got nothing to put on your side. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so when we place our faith in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, then it is connected. To repentance and then the other thing that's in a name is the fact that God's servant his holy and righteous one the originator of life the Christ the appointed one the one who is a prophet that in that name there is power there is healing there is forgiveness There is refreshment. There is reconciliation. There is a future. That's the connection that this family sitting here right now has. It's the connection that we have with those in the invisible church all across, in the church universal across the world. They share the same benefits, the same refreshment, across the world that we do here today and we can have a hope that these things are real, that the name of Jesus Christ not only healed this man but it's the name of Jesus Christ and it's the power that, is, that, is, uh, that accompanies that name, the glory that accompanies that name based on the authority of God, the authority of Yahweh that gives us reconciliation with him and gives us a future hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we are thankful that it is through the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that we can see that everything that was prophesied from Samuel through all the prophets was fulfilled. That we carry as your children the name of God on us. We are representatives to the world of your name. Lord, we take comfort in that. We repent because of that. We place our faith in the name. And we place our hope, our future, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it's in that same name that we pray. Amen.